Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. I'm Alan. And I'm Rachel. And today I have a special treat for you guys, which is a simple, straightforward animal episode of the best biome. Whoa. Oh, yay. I did it. (laughs) You did it. I hope you're proud of me. Um, (laughs) um, I gave you literally two hints about what it was. Yes. Yes. Those hints were that it's edible Mm -hmm. and that it's over 200 grams. That is a lot of possible animals. That's a lot of possible animals. Was one of the things bouncing in your head a chamois? No. A chamois? Yeah. Uh, no. Have you ever heard of such a thing? As far as I know, a chamois is something that you use to, like, buff a car (gasps) hood. Oh, that is a great start. We are actually uh, off to a good start. Alan has heard of this animal, but only in its utilitarian leather form. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, great. Uh, that is that is related to the animal we're discussing oh, really? today. Oh, wow. wow. Okay, yeah, good Weird. job. Yeah, no, that's, that's how it is. Um, I found this animal because I saw a picture of it, and I was like, is that a pronghorn? And then... Uh, the picture that I had saw for clarity was in silhouette. Mm. And then when I found a picture of the actual animal where I could see its face, I was like, oh, that's a goat. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what is this animal? It turns out it is a goat antelope. (laughs) Okay. A goat antelope? Yeah, which is actually a group of animals that includes actual goats and no antelope. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So that's our topic today is the chamois. And just to like, you know, start things off. I want to tell you like a couple of like quick what the heck is this thing um, points. All right. So number one, what is a chamois? It is a goat antelope native to the mountains in Europe. Hmm. And it's so widespread that it has seven subspecies in different mountain regions in Europe. That's insane. (laughs) Yes. Uh, There's actually two actual species of chamois. Um, I said seven subspecies because that's like the main one. There's like a slightly more rare chamois that also has some subspecies. And it tends to be like, you know, which mountains are they in? Oh, those ones are slightly different now because they live in different mountains. That's like what we're talking about with subspecies and stuff with this animal. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Did you say there's subspecies of subspecies? Uh, no, 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 no. My bad. I, there are two, su- there are two species okay. of chamois. <laughs> yep. Um, so when I said the first time that there are seven subspecies, I was talking about a single species. So there are like, I think technically like nine subspecies of chamois species. I'm making it complicated. This is supposed to be simple. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm still, um, we'll get into it it later. Is this a goat or an antelope? (laughs) We'll we'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) I'm just giving you some basic information to like set the scene. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. Number two, the thing I want to clear up right in the beginning, why is this an animal? Why is this animal? <laughs> yeah. Why is this an animal? <laughs> Why is this animal a grasslands animal? I'm glad you asked. Um, that's because during half of the year, it depends on mountainous grassland ecotypes like the alpine meadow. So this is a migratory species, and it just happens to be a migratory species where it changes elevation during the year. And when the meadows get snowed out in winter, they are forced to take refuge in forests oh. that are slightly oh. below. So they, they prefer in the summertime to hang out above the tree line in meadows 
And then when things get rough, they're like, I guess I'll eat tree bark now. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Also, uh, I just want to give you the general vibe of the chamois. Okay. So the general vibe is that it's like a sporty game animal that is, get this, not in any conservation distress because it's useful to people. Yeah. Isn't that a nice change of pace? (laughs) Yeah, that is nice. Um. It's also yummy, tasty game, and it produces leather that is economically useful, too, which Alan knew about without knowing about it. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I didn't, I guess I, I wasn't really thinking of, like, chamois leather. I was thinking of, like... The chamois. The chamois, oh, which is yeah. a kind, like, is based on a chamois. Yes. Or chamois. It's like uh-huh. a synthetic chamois. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, in some parts of the world, uh, people say chamois to refer to the animal itself. Oh, oh neat. Fun fact. Hmm. Yeah. Like New Zealand. They're not from New Zealand. I was going to say, why do, they, why do they have colonialism? Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, fantastic. Well, let's let's um, talk about a little bit of the history of the chamois. How did it come to be an animal? How does, why does it exist? We're talking evolution. Okay, that's what I like. I, we're going to start there. So what is a goat antelope is how we're going to start. <laughs> um, a goat antelope is just a member of the family Caprini, which mm-hmm. is within bovids. And uh, they are first seen in history beginning in the Miocene. So they're a fairly recent group of mammals. And uh, ever since the ice ages that followed the Miocene, this group has branched out from being mostly like really stocky bovid looking animals by adapting to a range of environments and lifestyles. And uh, the earliest of these animals are compared kind of to the modern Saro, which I don't know if you've ever ever seen a Saro. It kind of looks like a deer, but its neck is way too short. Like it's like alarmingly short. They have these, like, sort of dagger-like horns protruding up and back that are pretty, like, simple and straight. And their faces are kind of goatish, but their bodies look like some kind of, like, African bovid or something. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. With a too short neck. So this would be more closely, like, it is a goat. It is a goat. Goats are a member of this family. Gotcha, of Caprini. Yes. yes. Goats and sheep are, are members yeah, of this actual Capra, family. Yeah, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be more closely related, though, to true antelope, though, than pronghorn. Yeah. Because it's within the same bovidae mm-hmm. family, not something totally different. Correct, yeah. Okay. And I think, like, the, the gambit of these goat antelopes kind of stretches from being, like, super, super, super goaty to being like, are you might be an antelope. Like some of these things look so much like an antelope that they've been misclassified for a large part of history. Um, I think the most interesting one was uh, this Tibetan antelope is the name of the animal, but uh, it's it looks like a gazelle or something, but it is technically a member of this family and it just has like really unique adaptations and it has like really tall, like sort of spirally horns. Um, and it's really only through genetics that we realize that this thing belongs to this group of animals. That was a really cool animal, by the way, the Tibetan antelope. I decided not to cover it because I was like, okay, we got to stick to the topic. And it's not <laughs> very closely related to the chamois. But a lot of the members of this family 
persisted to this day because like unlike camels and things that went like super extinct over time these guys adapted to really specific often harsh environments and got really good at living there that's why we have like a lot of desert and mountainous members of this family or like muskox that live in the arctic Mm -hmm. so they really specialized on these harsh environments and um the Tibetan antelope is a good example of that. They are adapted to a really high altitude habitat. They're a super grasslands animal. They live in this like Tibetan plateau and they are the only mammal that we know of where they have this like crazy adaptation where they retain the fetal version of hemoglobin. So like as a fetus, mammals have like a different type of hemoglobin that retains more oxygen And these are the only mammal we know of where, like, as fully grown adults, they still have the fetal hemoglobin because it makes it really easy to survive in high altitudes. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really, really cool. Um, And this family is just full of those types of adaptations. Whoa. Okay. I love goats, guys. (laughs) Nicole does love goats. Goats are pretty good. I I love alpine meadows. Have you ever, like, have you guys been, like, up in an actual alpine meadow before? I have been. Yeah, it's very nice. It's very nice. There's so many flowers. Assuming that you're in there in the spring and summer when it is nice and not just very deep snow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) When you can actually, you know, traverse it and, Mm -hmm. you know, sound Uh of music it across the, uh, (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up because that precise alpine meadows, like, in the Swiss Alps is the precise habitat that chamois live in like they are literally in switzerland and and places like that okay yeah for sure yeah so that's where they live sound of the chamois get to just naturally sound of music their way through life it's great (laughs) (laughs) i love it Uh, um so just for clarity no members of the goat antelope family are actual antelopes but again the resemblance can be striking some other notable members of this group like i mentioned muskox so Obviously, things like mountain goats, Barbary sheep, and Arabian tars, Mm -hmm. and also domesticated goats and sheep are all members of this family. Arabian tars just look like a mountain goat, but they're like deserty and they're from a different part of the world, so they get a cool name. Yes. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Just for clarity, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I had to look them up. I was like, what is that? Um, It is is just a goat. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Just a goat. I mean, that's really reductive, I realize. But if you looked it up, you would say, oh, it's a goat. <laughs> so I'm just sparing you that. Yeah. yeah. How dare you? Uh, um, <laughs> a lot of goats are just kind of goaty. <laughs> yeah. But like taxonomically, like the tars are are more in the group of like saros and stuff. Mm-hmm. And saros, I think, are more closely related to muskox. It's like a really cool group of animals that I wouldn't put together necessarily. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time realizing that muskox were technically a goat was very shocking to me. <laughs> um. But, like, once you look for it, you're like, you know, I see it. I get it. You know? Like, that makes sense. Kind of like how llamas are camels. Like, yes. Yeah. Think about it long enough. It makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can you can see right. it. Right. They're just not goat-shaped. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. They're yes. more they're more cow-shaped. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. That's because okay. goats can come in different sizes and shapes, and it's fine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So, anyway... Um, Historically speaking, like other large mammals from this era, like the Pliocene and stuff, uh, m- many 
Pleistocene. I said a word that didn't exist. I'm so sorry. It uh, almost sounded like a word. I though. feel like the Pleistocene might be a thing, the, right? <laughs> I, I, I trusted you. Yeah. I was yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Uh, during the Pleistocene, etc. Uh, a lot of the members of this group went extinct after the Ice Ages, most likely, as we've talked about before, due to the spread of humans on the planet. Um, so it's a pretty large group today, and only seven species in this entire group were actually considered secure in their like population conservation. Um, but like I mentioned, today's species, good news, is one of those lucky seven, so that's pretty <laughs> exciting. Um, and uh, yeah, we're going to learn a little more about them. Uh, I also want to address the name because I think this is interesting. Obviously, Chamois is a very French name, and it is. Uh, the English name is approximately the same as the French name. And like a lot of other game species, the plural of Chamois uh, is usually or often pronounced the exact same as the singular, but it can be pronounced with the final S on the word sounded. So Chamois can be correct even though it sounds wrong okay <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, i also have a really fun fact this is really cool uh the dutch name for the chamois is gems and uh the male is called a gemsbok oh okay yeah, yeah okay yeah which sounds familiar because there is an african antelope called a gemsbok and this is a really cool language crossover here so the afrikaans word gemsbok actually came from the Dutch word, kind of like how English steals words from other languages all the time. Right. It, it's just language crossover happens all of the times. So the Afrikaans word gemsbok comes from the Dutch gemsbok, which literally means chamois buck. <laughs> but it got adopted into the language Afrikaans to refer to a completely separate animal, which is a sub-Saharan antelope species. It's in the genus Oryx. Mm. I think we we're all familiar with gemsbok. Uh, and in English... We have adopted the Afrikaans meaning of Gemsbok to refer to that animal. So language is just fascinating. Whoa. So Gemsbok literally means chamois buck, but it does not in English mean chamois. Yeah. Because we take the Afrikaans word, which is from the Dutch word, but it means the antelope, Gemsbok. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know why I find that so delightful. I, I hope you do too. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> no, of course. Uh, shoot. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the life history of the chamois. What does it do? What's its deal? I don't know. It's Rupicopra is the genus. And like I said before, there are only two living species of chamois. And both of those species and whatever subspecies exist within them are separated mostly geographically into various mountain ranges. And historically they had a pretty big like contained or like sorry not contained like broad range across those european mountains today it's very much like a lot of little islands of populations because of how their range has been restricted so uh the pyrenean chamois is restricted to the pyrenees and the apennines mountain ranges so those are the pyrenees are I'm very geographically challenged, so I looked all this I, up because I cannot picture any mountains at all that I exist. Was, I was thinking real hard about mountains in Europe, and I was like, uh. Where are they? they are these, these are the ones that are, like, like separate, like, France from the Iberian Peninsula? Yeah, it's exact, exactly it. Yeah, the Pyrenees Mountains are between Spain and France. Um, so 
there's a subspecies that lives there. And then the Apennines are a mountain chain down the Italian peninsula. And uh, I kind of, I, I don't know, I, I guess I hadn't really heard of the Apennines before. And when I was looking them up, I kind of realized that those are some really incredible mountains and uh, incredible in a conservation sense, too. Like, they contain some of the best preserved forests and montane grasslands in Europe. And they are now pretty well protected by national parks across uh, the, the landscape there. So there's a huge diversity of flora and fauna, and it serves as the last refuge for some of the large mammals that are now extinct in the rest of Central Europe, like the Italian wolf and the Marsican brown bear. Like, that's the only place you can find animals like that now in Europe. Um, so it's a really well-protected region, and it's full of really beautiful montane grasslands. Uh, I just think that's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, so then the alpine chamois, which is like the much more common species, uh, those guys live in pretty much every other mountain range in southern and central Europe, uh, including uh, Turkey. And they also live in the Caucasus in southwest Asia. So they stretch like across Europe and into Asia pretty much. Really broad little range there. Uh, and again... I find that they kind of resemble pronghorn a little bit in silhouette. I think it's the way that the horns are and just like the shape of like how they look, like their neck and stuff. Um, but since we don't have, it's an an audio medium. I'll try to describe them to you. Uh, the alpine chamois is kind of a chestnutty brown and it has like pretty shaggy fur, especially in winter. Their head and their throat is white, so it's pretty bright. But then they have like a dark band going from their mouth like through their eye and up their horns. So they have like a nice big stripey face. Sorry, a nice big stripey face. They have a white butt and they definitely have a tail, but it's not super visible. I actually read that um, the tail, somebody said that the tail doesn't seem to exist except during mating is the only time you really <laughs> notice that it's there. <laughs> um, so they don't like tail flag or anything like that. And... Uh, their horns kind of shoot straight up, but then the tip curves back in like a really sharp hook. So that's kind of where I, I think my brain got tricked into thinking it was kind of pronghorny. Yeah, yeah. it does have a very pronghorny looking horn. Yeah, I, but its face is definitely like, oh, that's a goat. <laughs> that is, yeah, definitely a goat. This is a very fluffy goat as it's well. It's a fluffy goat, yeah. Really shaggy. They live up in the cold places. They gotta have that shaggy fur. <laughs> this is, yeah, oh, this is very good. Um, I'm just looking at pictures of chamois now and I'm, this is, yeah, this is a, this is a quality goat. It's a good looking goat. Is this something you could like, are like when they're, when they're up on the mountains, is this something you like people can just like spot? Yeah. Like you can take a scope and spot them like on the mountain sides. Oh, totally. That's yeah. Cool. And they hang out in meadows. Um, they do like, uh, areas where they have access to those super steep cliffs, Obviously, there's no food or, like, shelter there, so they're not really using them necessarily, but they have them around as an escape route. So if danger comes, uh, they can scurry up the cliffs and just get out of the way, and that's kind of like their escape hatch. Mm -hmm. Very cool. But you're likely to see them up in the alpine meadows otherwise. Mm. It sounds just so nice. browsing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I would like to be a chamois. That sounds nice. Um they're also pretty gregarious, so they do hang out in groups. Uh, they can be either really, like, stable groups of the females and their young, or they can be somewhat loose and, like, separate out and stuff like that. But the males are 
not that way. Actually, the males can be really massive jerks to the younger males in the herd. Like, they can literally have them killed uh, and gang up on the little guys and beat them up. More on that later. Um, <laughs> but they're, they're otherwise fairly gregarious and they like to be around each other. So, yeah. Oh, also, when there is danger and they have to use their escape hatches, they will alert the rest of the herd by whistling really loud. Oh. Whistling? Yeah, they whistle and then everybody goes, whoa! And they all scurry up the, the really steep, inaccessible cliffs. <laughs> Not a bleat. No, a whistle. A whistle. Yeah, they whistle. <laughs> I don't know why I'm unable to picture a goat being able to whistle. Expand your imagination a little bit, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nicole can picture it easily. Look at her. She's not having any problems with this. Nicole, like have, you, have you seen a, or heard a goat whistle? I mean, I, I think so. I've read like entire <laughs> books about goats and like their evolutionary history. <laughs> <God>. So <laughs> that's why you're so quiet. You're like, I, I know all of this. <laughs> Feed more to me. Yes. I'm just like, <laughs> bam. So I like goats. <laughs> you have mentioned that a few times. <laughs> Are you going to be okay? Yes. Okay, great. Oh, man. Okay. So now I'd like to walk you through, like, sort of a life of the chamois. I think I did something similar like this with the Swainson's Hawk, and I found it quite charming. So we're going to talk about what it's like to be a chamois by imagining that we are a chamois. Okay. Okay. I'm going to start off with the most delightful sentence I've ever read. Um, This is just a direct quote uh, from the uh, University of of Michigan's uh, zoologic department's uh, account of these guys kids are born in may and june in a shelter of grass and lichens okay i'm there i'm a baby goat yeah (laughs) um for the pyrenees uh chamois they said it was a bed of moss and lichens Mm. um just a little shelter what does it look like i don't know do they build it i don't think so what kind of shelter is it i couldn't find more information but it is a shelter of grass and lichens now, this shelter is temporary because soon the little kids will be able to stand and follow their mothers. And within a few days, they are professional little leapers, capable of leaping just spectacularly. They've per- they've mastered their craft within a few days, right? And uh, some of them will have twins or even triplets, but most are little single child jammies out <laughs> on the alpine meadows. Now... It is dangerous living in the Alpine Meadow. Why is it dangerous? <laughs> What's out there? They're just so yummy. <laughs> They're so yummy. For oh, for yeah. chamois with natural predators around, like the Eurasian lynx or wolves, I'm not mentioning humans here because you can't hunt them during this time period, right? Oh. But as a baby, you might be devoured or orphaned. Fortunately, there is plenty of room for orphans in the chamois community. And uh, other chamois will swoop in and adopt you as one of their own and take care of you, even if you lose your mother. That's actually oh. pretty rare. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, rare among goats? Uh, among just animals in general. Well, like, yeah, sure. Yeah. But, but goats, I mean, too. But these are pretty pretty social, you said. Pretty gregarious. Yeah. So. Yeah. So they, they will just adopt orphans into the rest of the herd, and they will make sure they're looked after. Oh. Nice. Isn't that so so charming and sweet? Thus, life carries on for the chamois. <laughs> Feasting on alpine flowers and herbs and grasses until the snows fall when they are forced to retreat to lower elevation where hopefully the snow won't build as much. 
Now, if it's a super harsh winter, a chamois might be forced to fast for weeks until they can access their food under the snow. But otherwise, uh, lichens and mosses and even young pine shoots will suffice to survive off of during those winter months. They've also been known to just straight up eat pine needles and bark during these difficult times. Um, Typically, the lower alpine forests are pine-dominated forests, which is why we specifically mention pine, but they'll be happy living in other forests as long as the snow isn't too deep and there's just something approximating vegetation for them to munch on <laughs> approximating this is the I mean, goat the goat superpower of yeah. if it's at least resembles food in some way i will be able to yeah. digest this. Yeah. yeah so you know they do all right for themselves and uh eventually they will return to their highland meadows in the mountains yes ma'am <laughs> nicole's raising her hand <laughs> do they eat uh psychedelic lichens like a lot of other animals <laughs> Nicole, I did not specifically look at drug use in the chamois. I don't know whether psychedelic lichens grow in their home range. Okay. I imagine they would because they do eat lichens. Yes. Okay. Just wondering. I did not look at specific psychedelic lichen usage in the chamois. But again, they're very prominent animals in the landscape. So maybe they might. Fantastic. Thank Do you, you know something I don't? <laughs> no, I'm just okay. wondering. I'm, I'm thinking very hard because I have done other podcasts where I've looked at animals that are known to specifically seek them out. Yeah. Right. But I don't recall seeing the chamois name. Okay. Or so, if I did, I was like, well, that's something I don't know. And I glanced over it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that a common behavior for goats to seek out the good stuff? Um, I mean, goats will chew on fences to get high, so <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we have discussed this. Yeah, like they'll like gulp air, and it makes them. And horses will do this too. I think it's called like cropping or something. It's like huffing <clears throat> for goats. Yeah, they like chew on fences, and it's not just like a boredom thing. Like they're actually getting high when they do that. I mean, I guess it probably is boredom, <laughs> but like, yeah. <laughs> this is uh, I, this is okay. I'm sorry. I'm just getting a I'm getting a new appreciation for goats, and this is this I'm is so terrific. Glad. This is good information. Nicole, if you ever uh, just keep shooting in these beautiful tidbits for us, because it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Thank we'll, you. we'll Thank do. You. So, um, for the female chamois, this is likely to be the story for the rest of their life. Uh, herds, like I said, can be at times loose and unstable and break apart and shift but they tend to hang out in the same herd with the same routine in the same location as long as things are good for the majority of their lives for males however they live this pristine life for maybe two or three years and then everything changed <laughs> when the older males attacked <laughs> oh oh no yes um the older males turn on them um, between two and three years old. Uh, they won't be mature, the young males, until three and a half to four years old. Um, so the males turn on them before this time, as you can see. They can stay in the herd and risk being literally killed by them. But most will strike out on their own in this time. Um, now, I think it's kind of neat that young males get to go through a period of self-discovery and uh, nomadic wandering 
for a period of their lives. Um, but they won't risk settling down during their mature years. They wander the mountains, living a completely nomadic life for years. <laughs> wow. They will come into contact with other chamois. They like hanging around them, but they, again, will not risk settling down until they're maybe eight or nine years old, at which point uh, they are fully matured and aged by the mountains and by their lived experience. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and they will finally decide on uh, settling down in a specific location and stop their nomadic wanderings. Um, so, yeah, they have to be fully matured and aged at eight or nine years before they can really, you know, go back to their old lifestyle. That's insane. Do they find like an established, an established herd and just kind of like butt their way in now that yeah, they're bigger? Basically. Okay. Yeah. I think that um, they're slightly tolerated, but like not super tolerated at that point. But it's basically like when they're old enough and mature enough that they can hold their own mm -hmm. in the chamois hierarchy only then are they accepted or, like, safe enough to really settle down and stay in one region. Wow. So they spend six to seven years Correct. isolated. <laughs> Just living nomadic lives, wandering around. They're not totally isolated. Because they they're, will... going, they're going from herd to herd. Yes, they're wandering okay. the mountains. They, they will come into contact with other chamois, but m pretty much only during the breeding season. And otherwise, they're kind of living alone. I don't know about the prevalence of bachelor herds or if that's a thing that chamois do. I didn't come into contact with that information easily, so I didn't go out of my way to look it up. It might be that they will sometimes form bachelor groups or herds. But um, from what I've heard, they, they tend to be fairly solitary. And so they're... Um... They show up. They they'll still attempt to breed, even though they're, yeah. once they're matured, mm -hmm. like but they're not like old goat status. They'll no. still attempt to breed. Yeah, attempt to slip into like they have to have like a nice big like mature like I was gonna say beard, but they literally they do have beards, but that's not actually I was metaphorical like big grizzled beard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Like, okay, mm -hmm. they gotta show up and like feel like Clint Eastwood by the time they're accepted into the into the herd. You know, like. <laughs> They've got to have some lived experience. They've got to be aged like a fine cheese. <laughs> a fine goat cheese. Yes, a fine goat yeah. cheese in the mountain air. <laughs> so, this is, that is like, I don't know, that has like a weird, like, uh, mythic quality to it. Isn't it's it like, kind a, it's of just like fun? a hero's journey kind exactly. of a thing. That's yeah. what it felt like to me. I was like, that kind of sounds fun. Like you gotta go find yourself in the mountains <laughs> yeah, before you can be accepted back into society. Return and get your revenge. Yeah. <laughs> you might. <laughs> and then you perpetuate the cycle by throwing out the younger goats because yeah. they're weak. It's a it's a very yeah, um a cycle we sometimes see in humans too of mm -hmm. just like I suffered so you must now suffer like <laughs> 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 yeah get out of here you little baby child go wander the, the alps like bruce wayne and <laughs> earn your batman stripes before you can come back i love it yeah yeah it's yeah. great <laughs> amazing um so that's pretty great um now i mentioned that there are dangers for them but pretty much unless they're taken by a human natural disaster or large predator um they're likely to live an average of 20 years. So at eight or nine, they have like a full decade of old man goat lives ahead of them um, to live this 
<laughs> social lifestyle. They did lose the first decade-ish. <laughs> right. But, you know, and uh, after that, you know, they, they can live up to 20 years as the average. And being killed by anything other than a human is honestly pretty rare at this point. Like, historically... And I guess modernly, Persian leopards, brown bears, and golden eagles might prey upon them or have preyed upon them historically, but it's pretty rare now. I think Eurasian lynx and wolves are the most likely natural, quote-unquote, predator to kill them, but those are also fairly rare in Europe, so... uh, They really don't have very many predators besides humans. And today, epidemics and avalanches are more likely to kill them than a wolf or a lynx. Okay. (laughs) Um, So you said said 20 years is an average lifespan? Yes, in the wild. So they really have like pretty high survivorship during that period of like nomadic... They like, they do, yeah. And I think that's mainly because they don't have a ton of natural predators anymore. Sure. And, like, how likely is it to get shot by a human? I, like, that's probably honestly the main thing that takes down their population is hunting and, like, diseases. <laughs> right. Fascinating. Is there any statistics for how long they live in captivity? They live 20 years in the wild? Yeah. I don't remember. I, I, I do know this... this I don't know how accurate this is because it kind of blew my mind, but uh, Animal Diversity Web uh, cited the longest lived in the wild mm-hmm. chamois as being 22 years old. And it's like, how is that possible <laughs> that they don't live like that much beyond like their maximum age or their average age? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, there's not a lot that kills them. So I think I think the point that we take from the lifespan mm-hmm. of the chamois is that it's really easy for them to live to basically their maximum age in the wild right well and i mean that's okay that's that's impressive for a number of reasons it's also impressive that it is a game animal yeah. and lives average that long <laughs> i mean i guess that that is probably a testament to the difference in the hunting culture and also the hunting pressures that they mm-hmm. face in europe i think the, the lesson is just that they are it's very easy for them to escape danger if it's not disease or avalanche <laughs> Um, <laughs> I don't know why avalanche is so funny to me. It, it's like that is like one of their biggest risks, you know? Like there's not much else up there but avalanches. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah. I mean, shoot, there were some um, websites. Like I was looking for information from some departments of conservation, which often are talking about hunting accessibility. And even some of the studies people are doing where they're trying to use hunting data and trying to track down chamois to get information about them, a lot of them involve helicopters, you know, like... (laughs) For sure, yeah. So even though they are, like, around, and they can be in super accessible places, like, that's... um, Yeah, they're... They're out of the way. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Cool. This will be important when we talk about New Zealand. (laughs) Oh, okay. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. That is... um, all I have to say about the natural history of the chamois, uh, broadly speaking. Yeah. I would like to take a detour, unless you have any uh, side notes and tangents, uh, to talk about what the chamois means to humans, because it does mean something to humans. And maybe that's why one of the factors of why they do fairly well. Um, so, like, certain subspecies are declining, but otherwise they're increasing in number across Europe. 
and they are still to this day very much a game species. Uh, some folks consider the meat to be pretty prized food. It's allegedly very tasty. And uh, the leather, like Alan pointed out at the beginning <laughs> of the session, uh, is used to make, uh, quote unquote, chamois for cleaning glass and polishing cars. And that's because it's super soft and really absorbent leather. It has sort of like a suede texture to it. And unfortunately, this really makes me mad. Like, this should be illegal, right? But like, <laughs> modern chamois leather is frequently not at all made from the chamois itself it's Aww. like made from deer goats or sheep and it's like treated to have a similar quality to it so you cannot assume what you cannot assume that something is actual chamois the animal just because it has the name chamois okay yeah another good example of that is that there is a fabric called chamois it is not it has nothing to do with the animal it is not it is not at, it is a cotton fabric <laughs> And it's not a textile made from wool or anything. It's just named that because the way that they produce the fabric ends up creating this sort of like plush surface that's really similar to moleskin or chamois leather. So it just is named chamois because it ends up feeling like that smooth suede absorbent finish, which is very stupid, hmm. in my opinion. Horrible. Yeah. Don't don't take that name. <laughs> Anyway, if you see chamois fabric, don't get excited. It's just cotton. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, because I had never, I don't know that I've ever seen like a leather, yeah, like chamois, yeah. you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously all I'm familiar with is knockoff things. <laughs> yeah. That aren't, that aren't even actually Alas. from a goat. Well, the original is apparently really good for buffing glass and stuff. So if you're super fancy or you got some super fancy thing you're trying to take super fancy care of, (laughs) chamois leather is pretty cool. Fascinating. Yeah, because I've never thought of leathers being absorbent. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah, but you can, like, treat it a certain way. Or chamois leather can be approximated nowadays by other leather by being Mm -hmm. treated a certain way. But Hmm. I don't know. Anyway. Pretty neat. Technology making the animal irrelevant. So Aww. stupid. Um, I think the animals might be fine with that. But... <laughs> yeah. Probably. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention about them had to do with climate change, actually, because this is kind of fascinating. Um, and then we're going to conclude with some New Zealand. <laughs> Just some New Zealand fun facts. Okay, okay. Uh, because that is the one place where Shamwa are considered pests. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to there. Um since the chamois is pretty shaped by habitat specialization, um, you would expect climate change to have some impact on that. And uh, because obviously climate change is really impacting habitats. So it should not be a surprise that the chamois are impacted by climate change. But you'll recall that I've mentioned that their populations are doing completely fine. Like they're increasing in number. So that's not how they're being infected. Um Climate change is affecting them by shrinking them. They're uh, <laughs> the like in terms of body mass, they're they getting are smaller? getting significantly smaller. Ooh, what's significant? Um, like twenty five percent of their total body mass over thirty years alone. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that is really yeah. significant. Um. This research was published by Durham University in the UK um, in like 20, was it 2018? And uh, the scientists were 
not super surprised to find that they are shrinking because that is a known phenomenon for a lot of species across the world. Like even American kestrels have been documented as shrinking, probably due to climate change or other human impacts. Um, What surprised them was the degree to which this is happening over like a relatively short time period. Like the data they looked at was over 30 years and they shrank 25% of their body mass. Uh, And this was uh, an average across sexes, but it was more pronounced in males too. Mm -hmm. Uh, During that same time period, uh, the temperatures in their region have risen by like five to seven degrees Fahrenheit on average. So uh, it is warming in those places. And the big question is, why are goats shrinking? And also, should we be worried about our domestic animals if the chamois are struggling and stuff? And um, actually, uh, Nicole, we've talked about soe sheep a lot before. They're a breed of sheep native to – or not native, but they're from Scotland. Um, And this is apparently true of soe sheep too. Um, because the alpine grasslands are warmer in Scotland, grasses are available and growing for longer periods of time. And it's altered the behavior and bodies of soe sheep as well as a result. So uh, this is not like novel across sheep or goats either. Mm. And so we do have some information about why this tends to happen with ungulates. Uh, but the scientists studied three different hypotheses for why the chamois in Italy specifically where they were studying this. Uh, that's where it took place, why those guys are shrinking. And uh, they used that based on what we already know. So we have some data already about ungulate body mass being linked to things like population density and vegetation changes and also behaviors in their thermoregulation that can affect their body mass. Um, So those were the three hypotheses, like population size growing could be shrinking them. Mm -hmm. Maybe the vegetation is changing in various ways, like the soe sheep, you know, like, oh, maybe the grasses are growing for longer and whatever. Um, And then behaviors. So no shade to the Smithsonian. (laughs) (laughs) You can shade on them, it's fine. But I think... I think when people report on scientific studies, um, the wording often, I feel like, camouflages the actual results. Like, they just kind of state things without really explaining how any of the science actually works. And then you're stuck there wondering, like, well, this sounds stupid. Like, it sounds like they're just trying to make it about something that it's not because of the way these, like, reporters will report on science. And that really bothered me. Um, For example, when I read the article that was written in the Smithsonian about this, they said, quote, populations – I don't think this is actual quote. I think this is a paraphrase. (laughs) Past (laughs) Rachel, stop putting things in quotes. Um, They said basically – when I read the article in the Smithsonian about this, they said – Oh, population and temperature both probably affected it. That's the results. And then they focused on the climate change hypothesis completely and didn't really discuss the research at all. So then even as a science-minded person, I saw that and was sitting there thinking like, well, hang on, like, why are we convinced that climate change has something to do with this? When they literally said that increasing population lowers their body mass and that is what's happening. Like, I don't understand. And for me, I'm always kind of skeptical of these things because I personally know people who will not accept that climate change is even factual in the first place. And so when I see this in reporting, I'm like, this is so annoying because there probably is a good reason why we think that. 
But they're just stating it like it's fact and not really explaining it. I don't know. So that bothered me. Sorry for the tangent. But um, there is a good reason why. And here's the results. So basically, they studied three different populations. And they found that each of those populations had a strong body mass decrease, like we discussed. All three of those populations had increased in density, which peaked in the 1990s. And all three had striking increases in growing season temperatures during that time. Um, what was interesting was scientists in that region couldn't find any significant changes in vegetation timing, availability, or composition. So as far as they could see, nothing about the vegetation had changed. There wasn't even evidence of overgrazing or anything like that. So the vegetation was completely fine that didn't affect them at all. Hmm. We can take that out of the picture completely, which is interesting and different. So the next on the list was the really direct thermoregulatory links, which they calculated separately for each location's goats using weather stations literally at that location for the last 30 years. And we know that their behavior changes in high temperatures because they tend to overheat and so they thermoregulate basically by resting and chilling out, and they stop all their foraging behaviors. Um, they also obviously looked at demographic data for each site and how the density had changed. Okay. So to find out if those things were affecting their, like the temperature, the density were affecting their body mass, they took all of these data points that they gathered and modeled them out together, they basically said, like, let's calculate out how these things compare and see which ones actually fit the, the real data of the goat's body mass, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And they found that for each of the sites, the temperature and the density had the strongest negative effects on the mass. In fact, in one of the sites, they actually didn't even find good evidence that the density of the population was having an impact on body mass. So for one of the sites, that wasn't something that fit the data. Like when they mapped out population density against the goat body mass, it didn't appear to be correlated mm -hmm. in that one site. So for that site in particular, it was like, well, temperature is the only factor here. But yeah, even in that site, this, the goats were still shrinking where the density didn't appear to impact it. So I think the point here is that in science, there's not often like a really straightforward whodunit type answer because multiple factors can contribute to the same end result. And from what we can tell, there is a very strong effect of temperature affecting body mass and density affecting body mass, and that those two things in combination are probably why it's so dramatic is the answer. Okay. If that makes sense. In fact, the population uh, or the study site where the goats didn't appear to be affected by the density, they shrank slightly less than the other goats. Okay. If that makes sense. Yes, I think so. Do they know, and you might be getting to this, but like why temperature affected them so much? Was it primarily just they weren't eating as much? They never got as big because they yeah. were just hanging out? Well, and we can really only at this stage kind of um, hypothesize based mm -hmm. on what we know from other ungulate studies in similar 
places and similar um, habits and uh, what we've observed from them. So it looks like uh, it does have to do with resource availability, but instead of it being like, well, the grasses aren't growing as much and so they don't have as many grasses or they're overgrazing it so they can't reach the grasses. It's more like it's so freaking hot that the goats are limited by what their bodies can physically withstand. Mm-hmm. And so they're not having as much access to food because they're like having to chill out for longer periods of time during the day. And um, especially during the hottest part of the day, they're having to take more breaks from foraging. Okay. That, that makes sense. Cause I was trying to, I was trying to piece that all together. Cause you said it wasn't an issue with the available forage because yes. the plant community wasn't changing. Yes. But there's more of them. There are more of them, but it's not affecting the vegetation that there are more of them. And they're just not exploiting their habitat as much because it is too hot and too costly for them to do so during. Correct. Okay. During the the average, the days of the growing season are getting hotter. Yes. They also. By a lot. Yeah. Yeah. By by a significant degree. And um, they also tested like for the young ones, um, whether it was their mothers while they were you know dependent on their mothers whether that was being impacted or whether their body size was being impacted after weaning and that's true too it's so so um for the young chamois they are seeing a decline in their body mass because of having to graze after they're weaned and they're just not able to do that as much for various reasons Mm -hmm. So it is it is the grazing behavior that's being affected because the way that they thermoregulate is through behaviors Mm -hmm. and that takes away from their ability to get food. So they're shrinking. (laughs) That's insane. That is. Yeah. I mean, that's that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. That's sort of um, an unexpected consequence of climate change. Right. You know, and it's like it's so complicated, too, because, again, like the density is also impacting it, but. The density is probably impacting it in a sense of like, um, especially for young males, probably, you know, just getting butted out of certain territories more easily because it's a little bit more populated and then they're, you know, maybe getting killed for sticking around certain (laughs) areas. But even for young ones, you know, like maybe they're not only not getting as much time to forage, but there is a social dominance sort of going on in the chamois herd. So a more dense population means that especially young ones that are insubordinate, they're not getting as much access to the good grazing. Um, So that's impacting them too. It's all impacting their access to the forage that is widely available. So here's a thought. Yeah. Okay. They live, they're long lived. Mm Mm-hmm. We're talking like 20 years on average. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, okay. So, with the way this is trending, and you said this decrease in body mass has been observed over a period of 30 years. 30 years. So, the male, the more dominant male goats within a herd from 10 years ago would be much larger, potentially, than the goats like today so it's like these old goats like these og old goats okay are gonna be like much bigger than the males that are supposed to be coming up into the age structure of the herd 
Like, does that, I wonder if that would have any kind of effect eventually and where like they can't compete. Um, I just, I wonder about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. If, if 30 years ago, maybe you didn't have to spend 10 years by yourself. <laughs> maybe yeah. it was only five years. <laughs> oh my God. Well, uh, that's not true because some of that data comes from like super early research. Yeah. Like yeah. the sixties and stuff. Okay. So, okay. um, that, that hasn't necessarily changed. <laughs> they still hate baby goats or mature, but not aged enough goats. Yes, yeah. Yes. That are males. Um, and I think Alan, you like your point of the ways that there are more questions now that need to be answered is what makes this kind of research both exciting and also I think frustrating for lay people too, mm -hmm. because it's not really satisfying to say, oh, you think climate change is making them smaller and it's not just the population density. Well, why is it? And it's like, well, we haven't done that research yet. Like there, there yeah. are so many more questions now. All we can say for sure is that we absolutely know that this is impacted by the temperature because we see that in the data. Like that is a strong influence and even independent of density in some cases. And we think we know why because of other research we've done, but like we have so many questions to answer still. And you just got to do that research or be patient and wait for it to get done eventually. Like, you know, yeah. there's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, yeah, the consequences are m more complicated than we realize. It's not mm -hmm. all just like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, the Arctic is melting and the polar bear is skinny now. You know, yeah, like it's exactly. more. It's there's like more complex interactions happening, and exactly. it's important to understand those too because who knows? Like, well, how how what you you mentioned earlier, like what what does that potentially tell us about other like about domesticated animals? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, well, it, it tells us that, um, you know, especially for animals that maybe aren't adapted to higher temperatures, that uh, we could expect potentially, especially in young ones, their body mass to decrease if they're not equipped to deal with higher temperatures or heat. Mm -hmm. um, in this particular instance, that's what it means, at least. Yeah, I can see that definitely being a big problem for pretty much any animal that we get wool off of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Because they're really adapted for, like, extreme environments. But some of those extreme environments are, are being impacted by climate change in ways that are going to make it not suitable for those animals anymore. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or maybe more competition between animals or, you know, I guess in this case, you know, one of the good solutions was uh, recommendations that like hunting them could mitigate some of the changes. Mm -hmm. Like we can't change the temperatures, but since these two factors are influencing it, we could make them shrink slower by shooting more of them mm -hmm. and having more population control because there's no there's very little natural population control for them anymore. But, yeah. you know, thin, thin out the herd with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that could help in, in a lot of instances across the board. Um, but again, it's not going to stop it from happening because there are multiple factors involved. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, expect to see a lot more animals shrinking over time as climate change makes things worse. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> uh, for multiple and complex reasons. Should we go to New Zealand? Let's go to New Zealand. We'll end it there. Let's talk about New Zealand's chamois problem because I think this is fascinating. There is one place where chamois are a pest. That is the island nation of New Zealand. <laughs> And it is a pest there because people are, in the past, they just, they do things that don't make sense to modern people, but they thought it was neat at the time. Um, basically, in 1907, <laughs> the Austrian emperor 
Franz Joseph I gifted a bunch of alpine chamois to then-British colony New Zealand in exchange for a bunch of zoological and botanical specimens of New Zealand endemics. They were like, hey, you got some neat, rare, pretty birds. I would (laughs) like those. Take some chamois. Uh (laughs) And New Zealand was like, neat. Or New Zealand, the English colony, was like, (laughs) hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) That sounds great. Um, So two bucks and six does arrived in Wellington and were shipped to the South Island. And uh, fun fact, this was the last year that New Zealand was a British colony. So good for them. I don't know (laughs) what that has to do with anything, but I thought that was neat. Um, And... (laughs) These chamois were, quote, liberated, uh-huh. <laughs> is the word they use in New Zealand, uh, at uh, Arawaki or Mount Cook, which is the tallest mountain in New Zealand located in like the middle of the South Island. That same year, they, they were liberated there. Apparently, it was a huge task getting these like eight chamois there, by the way. Like they had to ship them over. Then they put them on a railroad. And then they took somehow a four-day journey on horseback with eight chamois. I don't know what that looked like, (laughs) but it must have been interesting. Um, And uh, yeah, they were released. That was it. Um. They they did do one other release attempt in 1914, and it was just one pair of chamois that they released. But the male was later shot by a guide because it attacked some tourists. Oh, so they really only introduced like one female, and that was it. That's all. That's all it took. <laughs> Hold on, wait. <laughs> so they got these eight goats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. From Austria. Uh huh. And then they put them. On them, just they 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 put them on the big mountain in the South Island and just said, welcome, "Have fun, welcome to New Zealand." <laughs> yes, and <laughs> just left them there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just for fun. They weren't managing them to no. like to cr- to like no. not increase a herd. No. They nope. Just they just set them it. loose and said, "Welcome to New Zealand." Now we English folk feel more at home. Yes, uh, Arapawa <laughs> Island goats are from Arapawa, well, it's not called Arapawa Island anymore, but it's off the coast of New Zealand. Um, and yeah, it was, it's attributed to Captain James Cook. Um, <laughs> they were brought there uh, and then New Zealanders were like, get these goats out of here, eradicated all of them, <laughs> took like 20 of them off the island, and that's all of the Arapawa Island goats are from like those 20 goats that were taken off the island. Yeah. Because they were destroying the island because they're goats. Right. Well, that sure. all doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's wild. Yeah. Okay, but didn't you say chamois have a pretty low reproductive capacity? Like, they usually only have one kid? Yeah. So but that why... was in 1907. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's been 115 years. But I mean, uh-huh. like, does that, like, okay. So what? What? what is their population now then? Like how many? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot, actually. Um, oh, uh, according to the Department of Conservation in New Zealand, um, they spread rapidly in small groups along the Southern Alps. Quote: sooner, further, and faster than any other introduced ungulate in New Zealand. <laughs> okay. Uh, and. Making this like extra uh, good for the chamois was that they were either completely 
or somewhat protected until 1930. So it was like <laughs> illegal to do anything to them for the first 23 years that they were in New Zealand. Okay. <laughs> Except uh-huh. that one that got shot Except in self-defense. For, that, was, <laughs> that was a special case. That yeah. goat, it was too aged. <laughs> gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so today they are incredibly widespread on the South Island. Uh, they are so populous that only one other introduced ungulate, which there are a surprising number of introduced ungulates in New Zealand. Um, only the red deer is more populous than the chamois in New Zealand. Uh, and they are still colonizing the island, moving northward, <laughs> slowly but surely. Wow. Um, actually, the rate of colonization of the chamois on New Zealand is about six miles per year. Okay. Which is pretty good. Uh, for comparison, there's another goat I- antelope that was introduced on the island, the Himalayan tar, which again is a goat. Um it was also released in the Southern Alps, and it only averaged about 1.4 miles of spread per year. <laughs> okay. Why so. do we keep just throwing goats on this poor why, island? Yeah, why, is, know, why, why are people giving the gift of goats to <laughs> Because places? people are crazy, man. I don't yeah. know. The old times were weird, especially <laughs> colonials, you know, just like yeah. coming to a new place. It's like, this is a beautiful place. Let me ruin everything that's normal or natural about this island by making it more like the place I'm from and destroying it. Like, none of that makes sense. You know what this is missing? Everything we had back home. Yes. Yes. The birds that I'm being paid for handsomely, who cares? (laughs) Anyway. So what's what? can you give me a number? Like, we've gone from eight to... Um. It's kind of hard to survey them because sure. they uh, need a helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It appears that there are probably, again, hard to survey them, uh-huh. but probably 30,000 chamois on New okay. Zealand now. Okay. Yep. That's not terrible. It could be worse. That could be worse. The population yeah. in Europe is like 400,000. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. And this is the alpine chamois, by the way. Wait. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. So that's not bad. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um, You said pest. I was thinking like, like I was thinking like feral hog level pest. mm. Like, are there millions of them now? Like what, what is it? Not millions. But the thing is like Nicole alluded to many times, they are very destructive and the Alpine meadows of New Zealand uh, are not super, you know, used to goats. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. And so, like, the the introduction of these animals has really modified the vegetation of some sensitive alpine areas, which famously uh, recover very slowly, these alpine and subalpine locations. Mm-hmm. So there are no predators, and the er- there are early years of... What? There are no predators, and they were super protected. And also, they're just... The range that they occupy is super inaccessible. So they're pretty much, like impossible to stop at this point yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, that's why they continue to colonize the island uh, so um, they also utilize a huge range of habitats in New Zealand and according to early scientists on New Zealand that were watching them quote eat just about everything which is green <laughs> um, and uh, yeah I mean 
they do the things that chamois do. And as decades have gone by, they've started utilizing a much broader range of habitats. So there are some that just live in the forests now. Uh, historically, like back in even in the 60s, they were pretty much like, we love meadows. And I guess we'll go into the forest if we have to. But now they're kind of like... Alpine New Zealand, just love everything. Let's eat all of it. And um, <laughs> they they do dip into like beach forests and stuff uh, and feast on those trees too. Um, also, these island goats have been shrinking about 20% more than goats in the natural range. Huh. They, they weigh today 20% less than goats in Europe. Does that make them 40% less than when they were originally introduced? I don't really know. But they weigh 20% <laughs> less than than regular non-New Zealand island goats. Wow. Is that because the... Well, okay. It might just be island-related, like, dwarfism. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Affecting them. Yep. Um, so anyway, to conclude, uh, New Zealand encourages unlimited chamois hunting in <laughs> <laughs> an effort to limit its impact on native alpine flora. But uh, it seems like the chamois is pretty much just going to be there forever. Goat for dinner again. Goat for dinner again. <laughs> if you can reach them, maybe hire a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least with the Arapaua Island goats, they were on an island, so they just eliminated all of them. You know, New Zealand is also an island. Well, but it's, but it's much very bigger. Big. Yeah. It's a large island. Yes. It is yeah. a large island. Yep. Uh, anyway, that's the story of the chamois. They're really good at doing goat things, mm -hmm. and I think it's nice that they're doing that. Not not on the New Zealand to clarify, but yeah, it's it's nice to talk about an animal that's doing okay. Mm -hmm. It's doing okay. Yeah. Being smaller isn't making them grow at a slower rate either in terms huh. of population. You know, like they're around. Mm -hmm. They just get hot <laughs> a lot more than they used to. Hmm. Yep. Relatable. <laughs> the end. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Amazing. <clears throat> Thanks for uh, indulging uh, all the ungulate goat lovers out there. Um, it was a wonderful, wonderful episode. <laughs> You're biased, but thank you. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And thank you for listening. <laughs> the Best Biome is produced through our nonprofit Grassland Groupies, dedicated to inspiring the conservation of grasslands. In the show notes below, you can find our website, phone number, and social media accounts. Text, call, or tweet your suggestions or fan mail. If you enjoyed the show and want to support us, leave us a review, tell your friends. We really couldn't do this without your support. So thank you very much, and we'll see you again in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Yay, goats. <laughs>